Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today on the podcast, we have Michael Weir. He's got a new book called The Spirit of Our Politics. Michael worked in the White House uh, for Obama, and uh, he's now the founder, president, and CEO of the Center for Christianity and Public Life. Uh, I rarely will have political figures on the podcast, uh, typically those who work for news stations. Um, I typically don't have those people on. Um, I've had rare exceptions. Uh, one of the ones that uh, you guys are somewhat familiar with is my friend from Telos, who worked um, under uh, in the Bush administration underneath Condoleezza Rice, and that is Todd Detheridge. And uh, this guy right here, Michael Weir, is another exception because I think both of these voices are not trying to get you aligned to a specific political party, but they're trying to help us do something a little bit more substantive. So the podcast with Michael Weir, we're having him on right now, and uh, he's someone that I've known his name for many years, and I've always wanted an opportunity to talk to him. And I think uh, you will not be disappointed at the conversation that Michael and I were able to finally have. So check it out. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today, it is my honor to be joined from Baltimore, Maryland. I'm Michael Weir, how are you, man? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. Now, Baltimore, it's a great place to be this time of year because football's very good in Baltimore right now. Life is, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, they they are an intimidating team. You watch watch the the game this past weekend, and you just go, "Oh my goodness!" I would not want to be facing facing these linebackers. Oh, you but but yeah, no. I think I think they have to be favorites against the Chiefs. Chiefs haven't looked mm-hmm. uh, as as good as they have in the past. They were good enough to beat my Buffalo Bills, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But but mm-hmm. but yeah, no. It's it's a good. <laughs> Good, good time in Baltimore. <laughs> oh, for my listeners, Michael and I have been talking football. Michael is originally from Buffalo. Mm. We record this just hours after a, a heartbreaking loss. <laughs> I, I want you to know, I was watching the game last night with my daughter. This is yeah. the Bills versus the Chiefs. And I wanted to root for the Chiefs. And if I'm being really honest, it's because I like Taylor Swift and I'm rooting <laughs> for the Chiefs. And then my heart just started tugging for the Bills. I don't know if it's the guilt I have as a Dallas Cowboys fan <laughs> from my childhood, which was vastly different from your childhood when it comes to football. My experience with y'all in football games is always very positive. And so maybe three decades later, it's like I'm trying to like put positive love towards the Bills because of kind of some of the ways that we've stomped your hearts. But anyway, <laughs> we won't talk about what happened last night. Anyway, so yeah, you got a book. This is we'll... the most abusive opening to a podcast interview I've done the my entire last few weeks here. Yeah. For for someone whose business is politics, for you to say what I'm doing to you is the most abusive thing you've experienced, <laughs> that is a that that is a very telling statement. This is honestly what it's like to be my friend. Before we started recording, you mentioned how, you know, Steve Carter, our our now mutual friend, and you compared me to Steve. What you need to know is Steve is a much nicer person than me. Okay. Um, good, and so you, you you don't me, get this from me, him. Let me take you, a note you, here. <laughs> I think I listen you You've been on a Suzanne Stabile's podcast, yeah. right? Years yeah, ago, yeah. I listened to that. Suzanne's a dear friend of mine. She was much nicer than me. You should know oh. that. She's nicer. Annie Downs endorsed the book. I, I yeah. don't know if you've ever been on, you've been on her podcast. She's much yeah. nicer. Yeah. So what you need to do is just, this is the level of expectation you need to have for talking to me. And I apologize, okay. but I'm just going to be upfront about it. Hey, I'm in. I'm in. Either way, I'm I'm here and uh, 
I'm willing to take take a little bit of abuse to to talk about this book. We we won't talk any more about football. Here's here's part of what I'm doing is I've wanted to talk to you. I've known about you. I've like I said, I listened to you on Suzanne's podcast. I've heard our mutual friend Scott Sauls yeah, told a beautiful sure. story about how you and Governor Haslam. Yeah. Am I saying his yeah, name right? right? He's been yeah. on my podcast. I feel like I should be able to say his name. Yeah. Um, did this really beautiful thing at First Pres Nashville four or five years, whenever it was yeah. years ago, where each of you represented different political sides and you spoke beautiful, kind words about each other. Uh, Scott talked about that. And I was like, I, I, I want to get to know Governor Haslam when he has his book come out. I want to talk to you. I've looked up to the stuff that you've done, but I've, I don't want to talk about politics. And yeah, sure. as a pastor, I'm just like, I'm begrudgingly stepping into this conversation because of the very things you describe so accurately in this book. You have a line at the very beginning of the book where you talk about how Christianity is either useless or it's used by yeah. the political system. And I'm like, that. that's why I don't really want to talk about the spirit, the title of the book is the spirit of our politics. I just don't want to. Yeah, and so sure. how many people do you feel like have that same sense of, seriously, do we have to do this yeah. um, about politics? Yeah, no, I, I think this exhaustion, this skepticism, politics feels like this area of life that, gosh, if for as long and as much as we can ignore it, let's let's try to because it just doesn't make us feel good we don't we don't see how it fits into the the rest of our life uh, un, unfortunately right a couple of things one politics it, we we live in a society that's dictated by politics so our lives are affected yep. by yep. political decisions our neighbors lives are affected by political decisions those are sort of maybe obvious statements to make I, I think the 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 third which is less common it, it is that we we need to understand the ways in which the political and the social are not ancillary to or supplemental to our spiritual formation there is no political you there's just there's just you. And so to the extent that your life brushes up against politics, whether that's running for office or just having a political conversation at the dinner table, uh, how you engage in that conversation is, is going to be reflected by and is going to be affected by the kind of person you are. And so mm -hmm. that's the message at the heart of this book, that the kind of politics we have has much to do with the kind of people we are and and we need we need to contend with that. You said that there's not this dichotomy between the political person whether that's how you vote or how you influence people to vote or what you put on your social media wall yeah. compared to who you actually are. Where did this notion that there is a bifurcation between this is normal me and then this is me when I have to, you know, go, you know, go to the polls or when I have to talk to someone, where did that even come from? Yeah, well, I, I don't think politics is the only area of life where where this is the case. I mean, I think that there's a faith and work movement for a reason because people had a ver had and in some cases still have a very similar approach. Sort of, I have my my work life and I'm a business person or wh whatever, and I, I take care of 
business and and yeah. real things in my work life. But then on Sundays, I go to church and I'm very nice and charitable. Sure. And so this this is this is part of just a sacred secular divide is one way that sure. that people talk about it. It it's also you know politics is a bit unique in in in, in America because of the the power of the notion of the separation between church and state. And you know, I think that the separation of church and state has a lot of value as a legal principle, as a philosophical one, as a sort of statement about where Christian resources like hold up, like where where they count, it's it's a pretty awful principle. Which is to say, if you take from the separation of church and state that it's some kind of that statement that our political life wouldn't and couldn't benefit from from Christian resources, then you're going to be misled in some pretty serious ways. Yeah, yeah. The idea that okay, once I said in a sermon that. I was trying to talk about the way Christians engage with our culture. Yeah. And I, I made the same. It's like, I think Christians who are living out what it means to be a Jesus person, it would bring a benefit. It would be a value add to our country. And like, I, I, I got a lot of people to buy in on that, but there's, there's this comedian who made a joke about how he was trying to express what it's like to be a white man in America. And he was like, you know, there, there, there's something that's, there are struggles about it. And then he's like, the joke was, yeah, but there's people who are amening about that statement and they're way too loud. And you're like, right. I'm not, right. I'm not with yeah. you. Like whatever you're thinking, I'm, I'm not saying that. And right. when I'm trying to say, I think people who love their neighbor, who forgive as they've been forgiven, who believe in generosity and welcoming their neighbor and believing in, I think that is a value add, but sometimes it's become this idea where it's like, this is the only way for someone to be a good part of our, our community. Yeah. And you're like, well, right. maybe that's an interesting philosophical discussion, but I don't think that's really a practically healthy discussion because I have plenty of friends from different religious commitments that are great neighbors. Yes. And so when we talk about this division of church and state, yeah, it creates an interesting discussion. I, I feel like I'm just kind of tongue-tied as to how you accurately, accurately express what that really should be about. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think for there are all kinds of public implications, and and I attend to those in in the book. I think for for Christians themselves, there's just a central discipleship question, which is we are. In America, you do not choose to have political influence. If you're if you're a citizen, you have political influence. You're an office holder, and so the question is how you steward that that influence. And so for 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 Christians, you're going to be exerting your will in politics, regardless. the 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 question is. What resources are you drawing on for that? Uh, I, I tell a story in the book. My, my my pastor, in the wake of the shooting in Las Vegas, preached a sermon. And in the middle of the sermon, he referenced this Barna study. So Barna, the Christian polling, polling sure. agency. And it was a two-part question. The, the, the first question was uh, basically... 
if someone was going, if someone was threatening violence on you, your family, your property, would you retaliate with with violence for for self defense? About seventy five percent said yes, I would. About twenty five percent, give or take, said said no, I wouldn't. That's that's fine. This has been a Christian debate for millennia. Sure. Uh, when sure. is the use of violence appropriate? That that's not as interesting to me. The follow-up question, though, is very interesting and very pertinent here. The follow-up question was basically, uh, do you think Jesus would agree with your answer, with your approach? And the numbers completely flip. So only 25% or so said, yes, I think Jesus would would act as, as, as I would. Mm-hmm. And there you get, so our political life is full of these kinds of things, sort of people saying, yes, in like an ideal world or you know, uh, yes, there's, you know, this biblical scriptural principle. Yes, Jesus said this, but in politics, that's really impractical. Yeah. Yeah, You know, uh, and, and there, yes, that has, that has consequences for our politics. But what I'm really interested in, what pastors need to be interested in is what does that do to the soul of the person who with their lips is professing, confidence in Jesus as Lord, but in all these different sorts of areas of life, including politics, think that the way of Jesus just simply isn't up to the task. Yeah. Yeah. It's always telling when you hear someone who has built themselves as a political figure who's trying to instill the teachings of Jesus or biblical values or whatever, but when the rubber meets the road, they will say something like, well, you know, the turn the other cheek has had a time and a place, and now we need something else. This right. is this doesn't apply to what we're doing here. And then you go, whoa, whoa, hold on. I mean, that seems to be a centerpiece of what Jesus is saying. And if you're just going to jettison the entire teaching because you can't apply it to what you're doing, but that's problematic. But if you want to say, what does it mean for us to be people who turn the other cheek? And what is the actual policy that supports that? Like, that's a different discussion. But just to go, <laughs> maybe it's just how blunt and upfront sometimes we have political figures being where they will actually just say those words yeah there's no place for turning in their cheeks in politics and you go okay but then maybe let's just leave jesus altogether out of it if you're going to say that this is one that you you don't want to do well then maybe maybe just pump the brakes on jesus altogether if you think that's really the game we're playing oh right and you know on on what on what basis and what other areas here here's here's what i find i find that for those whom like let, let's make it more more personal right cuz there okay. there are distinctions with public policy and those and we can sure. get into yes. the weeds there but but uh, think about the the person who will just start yelling across the dinner table when when politics becomes the the mm. the topic of conversation they'll go well well that's politics I I get heated up in politics but you know anything else you know you could uh, you, you know I I keep it cool but you know politics that's secular that that that, that has to do with my pocketbook I I get really yeah. or you know th- this you know, folks who get into political disagreements and will sort of knowingly lie or sort of misstate things just to sort of like get out or or call people names to try and get them to to shut up. Uh, he, here's what I found: uh, what those kinds of decisions to get out of a mm-hmm. certain kind of predicament, 
that kind of logic creeps into the rest of our lives. Yeah. So that when you're if, if if you're if you're running a business and you're looking at the the accounting ledger and you're going, you know, this doesn't add up. But if I move a few numbers around, you, you know, it, we could we could make it work. Yeah, that's the same logic of compromise. And they have something to do with one another. A logic of compromise in politics usually isn't going to stay quarantined, quarantined there. Yeah, I see what you did there. Yeah, it, it doesn't just stay in one spot. It's the entirety of who we are. We'll jump into Dallas Willard, who is a big influence on you and the book. And I think the world is better off for the more of us who are influenced by Dallas Willard's work. And so I love the way that you're bringing him into this political conversation because he's one of the great thinkers we have on spiritual formation of the last hundred years. Uh, before we jump to him, though, one of the things that you reference in the book is a a study that came from 15 scholars on a range of fields, and this is October 2020. And uh, this is the dire warning that they gave about our current political climate. And they said, uh, is a poisonous cocktail of othering, aversion, and moralization poses a threat to democracy. You go on to say in the book, the polarization we have today, though, focuses, quote, less on triumphs of ideas than on dominating the abhorrent supporters of the opposing party. Yeah. One of the lines that I keep going back to as a pastor is, unfortunately, more of us spend more time being discipled by whichever cable news that we prefer than by the actual teachings of Jesus. And part of the fruit of spending more time being discipled by these voices is that we are are more in line with how they think. And one of the big ways that we have been taught to think by either side of this is how wrong and how evil the other person is more than upholding, hey, these are things that we think are best for our country. And so we end up just hating people more than we actually support the points that we're voting for. Uh, as you're writing this and you're talking about this tendency uh, to other and aversion and moralization, you're seeing that and going, there are consequences all around us. When you think about some of those consequences, what comes to your mind first? Oh, so you know, there are all kinds of discreetly political consequences. So, mm. you know, the fact that our legislatures can't function, the, the, the incentive structures are given to politicians so that politicians are expected to play into the kinds of animosities and resentments that are held by and are exas you know are held by the public exacerbated by our politicians but but then and there's all kinds of emerging research on this the the social the interpersonal ramifications that are are the the toxicity of our political culture doesn't stay there it's affecting our churches, our families, our personal lives. Uh, there's a there's a study. The question has been asked for a long time now. Around there's this polling question that's basically asking parents like, who would you not want your child to marry? Yes. And in the yeah, 60s, yeah. the answer was, I would not want my child to marry someone of a of a different religion. Would not want my child to marry someone of a different race. And right, like not. Not not good. Well, it's telling. You ask that question now. If the parents are Republican, they'll say, I don't want my child to marry a Democrat. If the parent is a Democrat, they don't want their child to marry a Republican. 
the 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 social ramifications again political are are a very i think obvious the the social ramifications are are profound i i write in the book about you know that there was a and and in some ways still is a seeker sensitive church movement and evangelicalism and there's a lot of conversation about that and a lot of good and and what sure. i i write in the book about a politics sensitive churches that increasingly we're seeing churches make decisions and be formed around and have to react to the political affinities of of those in the church and that they're trying to attract and that is that's a dangerous thing when you yep. have local churches making decisions that are not just informed by but being driven by these these kinds of political idolatries that people have and the reason that churches are doing that is because it works. One right. of the yeah. best ways to build a crowd is to villainize a certain person and say, we're against them. Right. And you yeah. do that with, uh, this is a church against the woke, you know, secularization of America, or this is against the hate-filled, racist, whatever of that mm -hmm. group. And it works. Like, you really do a great job of building, in the same reason that the seeker movement existed was because there was numeric benefits to having a service that was catered to this style of experience. It works, but the problem is we're not discipling people. That's the problem. Well, right. We're letting our culture it, disciple it, it people. Works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Not, not to cut you off, but uh, it works depending on what you're measuring. You know, exactly. if what you're well measuring said. is, you know, butts in the seat, then, then I think at least at the short term, I think there are some places where it where it can work i think if if you think the local church is about offering knowledge and discipling people in that knowledge to increasingly take on the likeness of jesus christ then a model that is dictated by politics and and political short-term incentives you're not you're not going to be too successful in that regard which again is a terrible terrible loss for both our public life and then obviously for the lives of, of, of Christians and for the local church. Yeah, spot on. Uh, you've got this line in the book. You say, we must understand that the crisis today is not that Christians are now politically homeless, but rather that they ever thought they could make their home in politics at all. Yeah. I wish I could, like, our entire church would just memorize, your home is not in politics. And unfortunately, it's a lot easier for people now to feel commonality with people who vote like them, even if they don't have the same allegiance to Jesus, than having the same allegiance to Jesus with people who vote, oh, this is a MAGA voter, or this is a liberal voter. Like, I feel more at home with people who vote like me than people who receive right. the body and the blood of Jesus every Sunday. That yeah. That's our problem, because where is our home. Now, let, let me go back to the quote. We must understand that the crisis today is not that Christians are now politically homeless, but rather that they ever thought they could make their home in politics at all. Now, you are a person, you worked in the White House, you're involved in politics. It's not as though you're just like out in a cave like the Desert Fathers. Yeah, um, yeah. You work in politics, but how do you make sure that you yourself don't find your home in politics, even if you yourself, obviously, if you worked in the White House, that means you have some political allegiance. There's a party that, you know, that connects to you more than the other. But yeah. Like, how do you differentiate being in but not at home? Yeah. So uh, I, I think it's 
making decisions, both personally, who you're in community with, but also profession. You know, for me, because my 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 profession, or or even just let let's say your public sort of decision making or political decision making, that you are not following the marching orders of a political party or candidate but that you're getting your marching orders from from elsewhere. I, I write in the book, you know, the, the, it is not safe for Christians to engage in politics with their feet planted in politics. But when yeah. Christians can engage in politics with their feet planted in the gospel, then they, th- then they have something really to offer to, to our politics. I just, just one more quick thing on this, which is it is more important to be able to say and recognize and hold that you are politically homeless when you are happy generally with your political options. So, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of folks now because of <laughs> the state of our politics, the, the, so, so, some of the leading political figures who are, say, who are embracing sort of this moniker of being politically homeless. And that, that there can be some good in that, uh, though. I, I note that politically homeless is also finding your identity in politics. So, so to identify as politically homeless, you're you're still that's still a political identity. But it it's just as important to realize that when you were voting with pride, when you thought, oh, this candidate, you know, can really can really change things, that that's when it's most important to temper that ex, that sort of. What what can be a utopianism or or just an overconfidence with what Jamie Smith, the Christian philosopher, calls a, a sense of ambivalence in our politics, and I, I think Christians could use quite a bit more ambivalence in their politics without that ambivalence causing us to be debilitated into not not being able to to do anything at all. First of all, Jamie Smith, James K. A. Smith, brilliant person, been on the podcast yeah. a bunch of times. He's way smarter than me. And so whatever he says is more accurate than whatever I can come up with. I, I believe that. But it's hard to, like for you, you worked for Obama in the White House. Staffer, is that what your yeah, title sure. what was? Yeah, yeah. Can you tell me that in West Wing terms? Like, who were you? Which one were you in West Wing terms? <laughs> well, I, so I'm I was in the, I'm joking. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was I was in the office of faith based neighborhood partnerships. Sure. Uh, and so in in the in the domestic policy council in in the White House. So let let me give you an example here. So when the easiest thing, so as I I went on, I was asked to run religious outreach for. The president's reelect, which which I which I did, and when I took that job, you know, I'm I'm a student of 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 politics. The the easiest thing to do, the most direct line, if you're doing faith outreach for a political candidate, and the traditional way to do the job is to say, if you're a real blank, if yep. you're a real Christian, if you're a real evangelical, if you're a real, if you if you're if you if you're a devout Jew, if you're, you will vote for my candidate. Yep, one hundred percent. And no argument, sort of, really, it's an identitarian sort of sort of appeal. I, when I took that job, I asked six Republican friends of mine. If they join me on a call every week so that we could pray together, I asked them to, I asked them to uh, check in on some family, some family issues on a weekly basis. I was 
living away from my my family at the time for the campaign. I also said, look, I'm not in control of everything that comes out of this campaign. But as far as what comes out of my sort of shop, I want you to hold me accountable to never approaching that that line. My job, I had a stated job position. There was no hide. There was no sort of, yeah. it was obvious what my role is. My, my role is to make the best case I can for, for the candidate. So, so, so that's, that's, that's what I did, but wanted to stay away from and did stay away from this, this sort of idea that the vote was this sort of expression of faithfulness in a de facto kind of kind of way that you could tell how faithful someone was by how they voted in a binary election and i think we could use more of that just one thing to drive the point home that this is going to sound like a subtle shift but if if we as christians moved from saying things like i'm a christian and therefore i support candidate a sure or therefore i i support policy a to saying my christian faith motivates me to support candidate a policy a that subtle shift communicates something very important which is that it places at the center our the fact that there's prudential decision making going on on our part the second you enter politics you are translating or attempting to translate ultimate principle into the prudential realm of politics. And we are imperfect translators, but yeah. sometimes with all of our talk of, you know, I have a, I have a, my, my politics reflects a biblical worldview. Yeah. We, we sort of place what C.S. Lewis said. He said, you claim God hath said when he hasn't spoken. Yeah. Uh, you, you put the stamp of dogma on your own political views. And, and that, I mean, C.S. Lewis thought that that could be taking God's name in vain. Yeah, no, I think that that's spot on. It, it kind of reminds me of the difference between saying God's word is inspired which is 100% true, but my interpretation of God's word is not inspired. My interpretation right. is very fallible, but That's often exactly right. people like me, when I'm preaching, I, I don't put that caveat. I just say the Bible says this, and this is what's true. Instead of the more honest and humble posture of going, this is how I interpret the text. And there are other people who equally love Jesus and have committed their life to the cross, and they interpret the very same thing different from me. Yeah, yeah, and that yeah. doesn't sell, like that doesn't like move the needle. It doesn't, right, you know, right, right. push yeah, the yeah. crowd to get behind you. But it's it's true. It's humble. It's doing unto others as you'd want them to do unto you. And specifically what I mean is doing unto others who interpret this data differently. And yeah. I, I, I know someone one time made a statement. I said, you know, Christians think this. And I got the email from a very respected friend uh, from church. And she goes... I heard you say Christians don't think this, and I'm a Christian, and I think that. And I was like, mm -hmm. well, well, you see, what, what I meant was, <laughs> uh, and she, it was just spot on. It was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, the consensus position might be this. The majority of Christians typically interpret it this way. All right. these things are, all those statements are more faithful ways to present my interpretation. And so I think what you're yeah. describing, while it might seem subtle, it's, it's more honest. And I think that's yeah. something that would create less what you're calling othering where yeah. it just yes. like you're over yes. there. These yes. people yes. are awful. Yeah. I think that's right. You, uh, here's a, a line from the book. 
You say Christians participate in politics not as an act of imposition, but out of a spirit of loving service. And so you're encouraging Christians uh, to see politics as an act of service. You're encouraging gentleness. How do we see the spirit of service as we're expressing our politics instead of what you're calling uh, an act of imposition? Yeah. Can, can you, first of all, I need you to define uh, active imposition for my listeners and then jump into the answer. Yeah, no. So th- this is, this comes out of a chapter on gentleness in politics that was inspired and takes a great deal from uh, a book Dallas Willard wrote on Christian apologetics called The Allure of Gentleness. Mm-hmm. And Dallas advances Christian apologetics as an act of service and juxtaposes that approach to a Christian apologetics that had had become so axiomatic and had become more about insulating Christians from, from sort of secular attacks, so to speak, than, than actually trying to serve the, those that the Christian was doing the apologetics work with. And I, 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 there are significant applications to what a Christian politics has looked like. It, to, to impose means you, 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 you don't really have much care and not just practical care. You don't even care to explain why you're doing what you're doing. It's just something that if you have the power to do it, it will be done. And often that's the way Christians have approached politics, which is if we could get the votes, then our say goes. And we we don't even uh, we can not even care to instead approach politics out of a sense that we are here to will the good of though of our neighbors of those in our politics and so so yeah it's 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 an important it's an important concept and it it it's a paradigm shift it's a paradigm shift from uh, a posture of defensiveness and embattlement to one of contribution and joyful confidence and it's it's one uh, i think Christians can and should and have every resource to to step into. Yeah. Imposition to me sounds like the way of power. It's like, if I get power, I'm going to do what I want. And I believe I'm the one person who will not be corrupted by power. And I'm the one who can use power correctly, even though we have thousands of years of history of people incorrectly using power. Uh, There was a situation, churches where a predominantly white group move a certain direction and have inclusion of of women and thing and my people of color who said, well, okay, we want to be a part of this. We interpret that differently. And it seems like you guys just got the power. And so you all read it this way. And so you're going to go forward with it. And we're just going to be like, well, we don't have any say. So y'all are going to do what you're going to do. And it was very, very convicting because it's like, okay, well, I think this might be the right move, but then I see how the move is being inserted because I have power and I trust in the way of power. Like that's just part of who I am and that's not right. And anyway, so as a pastor, that's an interesting discussion and you you have a section 
in the book specifically for pastors about how yes. we are to engage with politics. And luckily, there's some Dallas Willard in there, because I think Dallas Willard is a brilliant person to have as a kind of a through line in the book. So great job on that. Uh, let me read a quote where you're talking about pastors being, and this is his terminology, teachers of the nation and spokespeople for Christ. And so yeah. you say this, uh, the task of Christian pastors and leaders is to present Christ's answers to the basic questions of life and to bring those answers forward as knowledge, primarily to those who are seeking and are open to following him, but also to all who may happen to hear. Okay, so that's that's a quote from Willard. Yeah. Flesh that out, because I know I'm not the only pastor who's going to be listening to you talk about this. As you're trying to coach us up on what we should be doing during the election cycle, what does it mean to be teaching the basic questions of life? Yeah. So this is, Willard had concern, and I, I, I share it, especially in this political climate. As I talk with pastors around the country, I sense such an exhaustion, such a weariness. And I think a sense that this is not what I signed up for. I'm yep. being put yep. in these in these boxes that are so far outside of yep. my sense of calling. And I hope that that this I hope that my book and this chapter in particular will will empower pastors will remind pastors and those in their churches of the dignity of the calling of a pastor. Willard thought that pastors hold an essential role. He, he, he says that the most important activity happening in your local community is that which takes place under the loving authority of, 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 of pastors in the, in the local church. I, I think that's true. Pastors are to bring knowledge, not beliefies, What's the not, difference of, how would you find knowledge compared to belief? Like, what's the difference? If, if pastors think that their job is to sort of get people to do things, as opposed to offering knowledge about reality, about God's kingdom, and not just, again, not just sort of beliefs, things that you things that you ought to provide mental assent for, but knowledge about reality, then burnout, then this 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 sense of constant exertion is just gonna be is just gonna be evident. And this is true when it comes to these these political issues. So the the book offers a range that in this chapter in particular offer a range of ways for pastors to think about and speak into our politics, which I think there used to be this dominant idea that we could just keep this stuff outside of the four walls of the, the church. Yeah. But as we've discussed at the beginning of this interview, I think most pastors have, have said that that's just completely impractical in the mm -hmm. kind of culture that we have today. And so, so I'll offer a range of resources, both for thought and practice for how pastors can can offer knowledge in this political environment. Here's one thing I'd say. I think that there's space and room for the ways in which Christian knowledge might inform direct political decisions. But I think one of the greatest gifts that Christians have to offer our politics right now is not telling our politics what it what it is, what it should be, but what it is not. 
to mm. to to rightly size politics mm. in the imagination of those under and within our influence and pastors have a great deal to offer there tell them what they are not because what politics are telling me is that those people are the problem with our country and that if they get in charge, then we're going to lose everything. Or if they stay in charge, then it's going to get worse. Politics is, al- I feel like politics is always asking for more than a Christian can give. Yes. And the yeah, idea yeah, that yeah. a pastor is telling you what they aren't like that as I, part of the reason we're doing this podcast is because I'm going to have to preach on this in a couple months, like how to survive in an election cycle. And I, because of all of our mutual friends, like I had admiration and respect for you. And so part of the reason I want to read this book and talk to you is because I needed you to tell me what to preach in a sermon. And I feel like that one right there is definitely going in there. Like this isn't what it is. The other side is something that during COVID, I had a new perspective on a complaint that I'd gotten like five years before. I was Hmm. teaching the, the story about Ruth. Ruth is an alien. She is someone who is a refugee and she receives hospitality. And so I, I was telling that story using the perspective of there was a refugee crisis at the time. And I had a buddy who was a filmmaker who shot some stuff for, I think it was Compassion International from a refugee camp. And I just used some of that footage as a way to illustrate, this is probably what Ruth would have felt like. And afterwards, Someone complained about it and said, you know, I want to go to church. I don't want to hear all this politics stuff. And I was like, I I never told you how to vote for the issue. I never brought up. And I was relatively callous to the criticism because I thought it was unfounded. Years later during COVID, there's a podcast that I occasionally would listen to. And I was like, honestly, I'm sick of the podcaster giving his opinion on vaccines and how you should respond to that. Like, I share your stuff, use your platform to do what you need to do. But at some point, I'm like, I, I know what you think. I know what I think. I, I, let's just move on. And I think part of what some people want to do when they go to church is, tell me that Jesus is Lord. Tell me yeah. that grace is there for me. Tell me that the Holy Spirit is not going to abandon me. Like, And so to yes. talk about this is kind of like, man, why do we have to do this? Can't I just have a safe space for, <laughs> for my life outside of politics? How do you yeah. hear that? Yeah, so I think that there's some I think that there's some 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 merit to that. I think you know part of what I meant by rightly sizing our politics is ensuring that we're placing our politics under God and not not over God. And sometimes yeah. if we use the if we use the church or or if we if we find ourselves using I ref- I refer in the book to something I call the toolbox gospel, which yeah. basically refers to this idea that Christianity offers all of these great, all this great rhetoric, all this great tradition that I can sort of pick and choose from to advance a a worldview. But mm-hmm. I leave the supernatural. I leave I leave the the actual relationship, interactive relationship with Jesus out of it. We don't want to do that. And right, this is all one-to-one sort of pastoral stuff, but right, I think there are people who can say that, and they literally do mean, look, every time I come to church, the pastor's using the pulpit on Sunday to express his prudential view on the topics of the day, and that's not what he has the authority, that's not what the pastor has the authority for, that's not why, that's not what I need in the morning, and I think, I think that there's some merit to that. However, the the same sort of complaint could be made from someone who says, look, 
don't touch my politics. <laughs> you know, like you, you stay in your lane mm-hmm. and Jesus, you stay in your lane. And I have my own sort of political read and I have my own priorities and I, I have my own sort of top issues and you stay out and I'll just come to you, Jesus, for my sin problem. And in yep. the book, I refer to that as the fixer gospel, this sort I, of I idea that them. that Jesus could be sort of kept out. It, you just call him in when the when the when the when the body is is on the carpet, and if yeah. he could take care of the sin problem, then you could go on living your life. And so those would be like the two extremes. Uh, yeah, and th- those would be the two extremes. And, so, and we want to we want to make sure that we're conveying confidence that Jesus cares about. Uh, the whole of our lives without expressing too much confidence in our own political opinions. That's smart. I like the way that you you paired uh, the fixer gospel. Fixer typically gets things done no matter if the way to get there is right or wrong. With right. The, the great line from Dallas Willard, where we've reduced the gospel to just a sin management problem, and yes. he, he pairs that with the idea of vampire Christians. I just want Jesus for the blood and nothing else, just like take care of my sin problem. And yeah, there, there has to be something much bigger without being reduced to just being a shill for whatever interpretation you have of the present political thing. Okay. I want to get you out. Final question, spiritual disciplines. Anyone knows Dallas Willard knows that he's a spiritual discipline guru. His book, uh, Divine Conspiracy is one of many ways that he's contributed to how many of us engage with spiritual disciplines. There are spiritual disciplines of abstinence and engagement can you yeah. give me a quick one of each for someone as, okay, we're gearing up. There's going to be more and more political discourse. It's going to be the center of kind of everything. Give me one abstinence, one engagement discipline that could help me survive this election cycle. Yeah. So for abstinence, I'll, I'll give two that are usually paired together. Okay. Uh, silence and solitude. I think that silence and solitude are absolutely essential disciplines given the environment today. And, and I, I, I lay that out in the book in terms of engagement. Oh gosh, there. Well, let, let me say this. I mean, talk about celebration, talk about worship, prayer. There's a lot of sort of rhetoric around whether prayer is appropriate in politics is prayer opposed to action. If you're praying for something, does that mean you're, you're avoiding it? And I, I, I think instead of giving into this sort of very politicized conversation about prayer, which is the last thing Christians should be doing, we should be upholding prayer as the very the very thing you want to do if you really want to deal with a problem. So, so silence and solitude and prayer would be just some, but I offer probably about a dozen disciplines in the book for, 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 for how... Uh, for shaping the kind of person we are that can make a positive contribution to our politics. That's good. That's good. The good stuff. The book, again, The Spirit of Our Politics, a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, I love the way that you've woven Willard through the idea of the allure of gentleness. Uh, Politics with gentleness, like that seems like an oxymoron, but I love the way you've done that. And because of that, like I was going to, you know, make a joke about, you know, someone who worked for Obama and being a Buffalo Bills fan. And just because the field goal went left, did that make it any easier for you? Wide left? Just because. But I'm not going to make that joke now. 
because I mean, I'm going to choose wide right. Unfortunately, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought I went yeah. left. My bad. No, um, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> so no, it didn't make it easier. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was pretty not easy. It was pretty <laughs> pretty difficult. <laughs> Gosh, what a terrible human being I am, Michael. You've lived up to my expectations. It's great to finally connect with you. And again, congrats on the book, uh, The Spirit of Our Politics. It's a great resource to help you survive this elect cycle. Thank you so much, Luke. Great being on. Great being on with you.